Welcome to Learning Through Math, the podcast. I'm Laura at I Teach the Why. I'm Karina at Mrs. Cousins 5. Our mission is to inspire ourselves and others to keep learning and improving with passion. And hugs. You can find us at learningthroughmath.com and on Twitter at Laura and Karina. Come and join us on this journey of learning. Thanks for joining us. We are recording this in November of 2022. And welcome to episode 94, What Does Fluency Really Mean and Why Does It Matter? Words by Jenny Bay Williams and John San Giovanni from the Figuring Out Fluency book, which we're talking about today. And it's the title of chapter one, everybody. A shout out today. I'm doing the shout out today. I'm so excited. So Laura, this whole weekend we went, we attended the Making Math Moments virtual summit and I'm No, no, in- no. You, you attended. You attended, I, I did. think, every single session. I made about yeah. like one tenth of all the sessions. Yeah. Her yeah, bingo I filled, card I, is done. <laughs> I filled the, the scavenger hunt and everything. But I'm sitting in the first session and I get this notification. Somebody DM'd me and said her name was Joanna and said, I love your podcast. And I was like so excited because I'm usually the one who DMs people. So to, for somebody to DM me, I was like, what is going on? <laughs> so I was, I was very excited. You're a superstar now. See, everybody knows well, who you are. You are too. You probably would have gotten DM'd if you had been in the session. You just were driving and at an event. <laughs> That's true. Okay. Well, our reflection for this week is about the Making Math Moments That Matter Virtual Math Summit. Wow. Yeah. That was a lot and amazing. And is your head about to explode? Yeah. I don't even know what like <laughs> what I sat through. You know, I because I sat through so many. It was amazing, wonderful. I, I I'm glad that I have this whole week to kind of reflect on it. We're on Thanksgiving break now, so oh, yeah. So I can just go back to some of my notes, some of the pictures that I took, and just kind of digest it filter. all, right? Yeah, digest. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Wow, it was a lot. It was, and I, I was just so happy to listen in on some some of the speakers because you know you don't get access to these people all the time these great minds so yeah. what a, what a treat so Kyle and John thank you again so much for putting all of that on so our good news for this week is that we have a very special guest with us today. And I'm just going to tell you one little story. So yesterday, my mom and I were doing Sunday Adventures with Mom, and we were listening to last week's podcast. And I said to her, oh, well, this week we're going to have Jenny on. And she goes, Bay Williams? And I go, yes, Mom, look at you. And she's like, well, you know, you, you guys talk about her a lot. I'm like, yes, we do. So our guest is the amazing. Now, do you go by Jenny? I call you Jenny. I do. I you write are. by Jennifer, but my friends call me Jenny and both of you are my friends. So yes, they call me Jenny. Yes. <laughs> and listen, we know a lot of Jennifers, like a lot. When we all get to the old folks home and we yell, hey, Jennifer, like half the community is going to turn around and be like, what? Right. But you're the only one I call Jenny. Well, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. There are fewer people that go by Jenny than Jennifer. So um, yes, there's a uh, Jennifer was, I think the number one name in the seventies mm-hmm. and so of the decades. So yeah, there's a lot of us walking around. I mean, I'm a little, I was born a little bit before that, by the way. <laughs> that's okay. We're, you and I are about the same age, so it's all good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So Dr. Jennifer Bay Williams, Jenny, uh, thank you so much, first of all, for taking your time. Like we feel like this is going to be our own personal PD session and everyone else just kind of gets to listen in (laughs) on whatever we get to talk about. So uh, tell us, in case listeners have been living under a rock, tell us a little bit about you. All right. So um, let's see. I started as a middle school teacher and then taught some high school, but I also had the opportunity to become an elementary math specialist. I was in a K-12 school in uh, Lima, Peru, actually, at the time. 
And I started just noticing um, these sort of things that happen along the years that hurt or help students along the way. Um, that took me to my PhD program. Um, and just to keep this from not being the whole life story, <laughs> fast forward uh, to uh, realizing how important um, things like fluency are that we have. I was one of those people that always talk about how, um, well, they, they know their skills. It's the concepts they don't have. Well, that's not really true because they, they need students um, and teachers need the conceptual foundations in order to really be good at the skills. That's the piece. So the skills that they had might have been, you know, good memory of standard algorithms, which is not adequate at all. So I started doing work specifically in that area probably, I don't know, 15 years ago. But here's a fun fact. Um, <laughs> when I went to college, I was never going to go into teaching. And then my freshman year, because teachers worked so hard, you know, I just sat there in high school <laughs> noticing how hard my teachers worked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I could never do that. Uh, and then my freshman year, I volunteered at an elementary school and I helped this uh, boy one day who was struggling with his basic facts. And I registered for my first education class after that. It was wow. so meaningful. So it's just kind of a like how life has these things that happen along the way. The fact that I now spend so much time trying to transform um, how we go about basic facts and then fluency beyond basic facts. And that that happens to also be the first experience that led me into the teaching profession. It's just kind of a cool little. What was your major? What were you going to be when you grew up? Um, I had no idea. I was taking math classes because I was good at math. I really had no idea. I'd say something to my parents like, I want to major in psychology. They're like, there's no jobs there. The next thing (laughs) I'd say is, okay, I really like my anthropology class. Well, there's no job there. (laughs) Meanwhile, I just keep taking math classes. But I liked people. So um, I, I guess I could teach math. And at the time I thought, you know, but math is like one of the most boring things to teach. Like in social studies and English, you know, we do all this like group work and we get to do projects and all this stuff. And math is just so boring. Like that's the thing I'm going to have to teach, which is then, of course, another little irony that I started teaching math. And I'm like, oh, no, that's just the way I learned math. Yeah. Like to teach math can be and needs to be that, you know, kind of engagement that I had experienced in my other, you know, content areas. So how long were you a classroom teacher before you became a math specialist? Well, I continued to math teach. I had like a half day of being a math teacher and then half Mm -hmm. day of being a specialist because it was one big campus. So I taught for eight years full time. Okay. And then I started my PhD and I did a little bit of part-time teaching then, but um, for the most part, it was eight years. Okay. Wow. Teaching grade eight for eight years. All those years, I clung to my eighth grade class. I wouldn't let them go. Wow. <laughs> we all have our favorite age. Yes. And for me, it was the eighth graders. Oh, my. Yeah. Huh. When they're the big the big kahunas, and then they leave, and then they're the little fish in the big pond again in high school, yeah. right? Yeah. And for me, like, they would out, uh, a lot of them would outgrow me. So it was very fun for them to come back from, like, winter break and see if they had outgrown me or if it wasn't, you know, that year, they'd want to come back and see me later to see if that outgrown me. You know, I sit right there at that height that most people will, you know, I'm like five five. So it's just a great year of just seeing them, you know, transition to their next you know, version of themselves. Right. Oh my gosh. So what, what made you, um, after that encounter with the little boy, what made you like say this is what I want to do? So, um, he, I met him and they said, you know, he's failing his basic facts and they put me back in a, like a teacher resource room and, uh, with a deck of uh, flashcards. And I came back a week later and um, threw them away. I, I didn't know what to do. I really didn't know what to do. I mean, no training, just a deck of flashcards and a kid who's failing his facts. And it was multiplication facts. Okay. And um, so I'm like, well, he's got to know some of these, right? So just, I'm like, so I'm sorting through the deck to try to find the ones that I think he might know. And so we just started sorting them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and he was telling me, you know, I don't know my facts. I'm like, well, you know this one. And I'd pull out another one and, and he'd know it. And so we just started a, pa- a pile of the ones that he knew and then made a pile of the ones he didn't know. So then I come back a week later and who would have been like, you know, the curriculum specialist or the vice principal, I'm not sure. But the person who was uh, my, you know, contact at the school right. met me at the front door as I'm walking in. And she says, I'm just going to call him Adam. What did you do with Adam? 
well, of course, I always am afraid I'm going to do something wrong. This right. is just my identity. So I instantly think, oh my gosh, like, what I did know. I do? Like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to panic about it. And so I'm like, wow, we just sorted the flashcards. Like, I'm, so sorry, right? <laughs> I'm so nervous about it. She's like, he got 100% on his fact test. And the teacher asked me to ask you what you did. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, I did very little, to be honest. (laughs) But to go back to your question, Laura, I'm like, this was fantastic. Like, I got such a warm feeling that lasted for days and days and days. And um, this is great working with young folks. So I did sign up for... um, you know, my first class, that was the first semester of my freshman year. So I signed up for like an elementary education class my next semester. And um, you were hooked. Then I realized I only wanted to teach math, which pushed me up to (laughs) elementary school up into, I just, you know, felt like that was something I could know about and could work on. So yeah, that's, that's basically how it happened is this kid had a life changing uh, I don't know. I, I don't know how his life went in terms of whether he decided he was good at math or whatever, but those little moments can really mm-hmm. matter, you know, oh, to kids yeah. when they're like, oh gosh, I, I do know some stuff. So yeah. That's awesome. What about you all? Do you have those moments in time where you're like, this moment like took me this direction? Well, I knew since I was seven that I wanted to be a teacher. So I, I didn't have anything else in my head Actually, I wanted to be a teacher or a cash register lady. I didn't realize that it was cashier. Um, (laughs) And I did get to work in retail. I was working at a Hallmark store for many years. And, um, but I just, I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. I would play school at home, you know, with whoever, my stuffed animals or my brother, sister, poor things. Like when we would go to Eckerd's, okay, we're going back many years now. Karina, did they even have Eckerd's in Canada? You, you don't even know. No. So before CVS. It's before CVS. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, we would go and buy all of our school supplies. You know, everyone would get their lists. And then I'd bring everything home and set it back up like at Eckerd's. And my brother and sister would have to come and buy everything again. And I'm sorry to my brother and sister, but <laughs> I love doing stuff <laughs> like that. <laughs> Karina, what about you? <laughs> Uh, for me, I was teaching was always something that was part of my life, but I never, I think I didn't want to, I didn't want to admit that that's what I wanted to do, or I didn't realize that that's what I wanted to do. So I consistently volunteered in schools through high school and through even university and, and college. Um, I was always in a classroom, like just helping read with kids. But it didn't occur to me that that's what I wanted to do. It was. It wasn't until uh, I majored in English language and literature and minored in mathematics. So I I liked both, and I didn't want to decide which one I was going to do. And then I was, and then I was just thinking, what job can I have that I can incorporate both of these things because I love them both, and. And then I was like, well, an elementary school teacher does that all the time. So that's what I'm going to do. But it was, it really was like, why didn't I ever think of this as an option? Because I was consistently volunteering uh, in schools. It just wasn't, I don't know. It just wasn't something that I thought of. Did either of you ever have a teacher try to talk you out of becoming a teacher? I did when I was in college. Not, not anybody at my school but a teacher who taught at the elementary school that I attended, you know, she and my mom were friends and she's like, do not go into teaching. It is, you know, basically like not worth it. And I just, I can't imagine doing anything else. Did either of you have that experience? I have, I had that experience. Basically I felt like in college, once my mathematician faculty members saw that I had added on teaching certification I was treated with less respect for my knowledge Ooh. base. Um, I That could have just been my own thoughts. Uh, not all of them, but for some of them. But I feel like there is a disrespect um, towards teaching. And I'm thinking how many years ago that was. And mm-hmm. today it's just so hard. Um, and just put my teacher ed hat on for a moment. Um, we're having trouble recruiting people into the profession. And I wonder, as I listen to your stories, how do we plant those seeds with our you know, our high school kiddos, any of our, uh, you know, 
any age to think about the value of the profession, if we just speak frankly. Um, a story from last week, we have a gal who's a freshman who came in as an education major and then decided not to because of the negative things she's been hearing. And then she went to a middle school and listened to a teacher panel and changed her mind back. Aww, you wow. know, she's like, I just needed to hear from some people in the profession and, um, and tune out the other negativity. So I think we have a ways to go to really put forth our best selves and the joy of the profession um, and how we handle the not as good things in the profession so that we continue to get, you know, just amazing people doing the great work that teaching is. Right. See, I wasn't told not to go in because the profession wasn't valuable in Canada at the time when I graduated in 2008, there were very few jobs, teaching jobs. Mm -hmm. So it was so competitive that everyone was like, don't be a teacher. You're not going to find a job. And it's true. A lot of my friends who graduated at the same time, it took them 10 years to get a permanent teaching position. They were on like long-term occasionals that they call them LTOs, where it would be like a maternity leave that they would be like a substitute for a year. Um, And then they would just, and just recently they just got hired. So when Matthew and I both, my husband, were both teachers, we both needed jobs. We didn't have any consistency in Ontario, right, or like really hope that we were both going to get a job, especially in the same city. Uh, We said, well, forget this. Let's go to Florida. And here we are because they were desperate for teachers uh, at that time in 2008. And still, we're still desperate for teachers. I know. Tell all of your Canadian friends, move to the U.S., man. We've got jobs everywhere. Yeah, it's not as easy. It's not just as easy as that anymore. It w- the reason why we were able to was because we did our our teaching certification at SUNY Potsdam in New York. So we were in an in an American school. So we were already we had our degrees and you know our masters of education in in from the states. So that was an easier transition. If you just go in Canada and you get your diploma or degree and then come come across, it's not as it's not as easy. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Wow. But, but I want to know, so let's jump into fluency, Jenny, I was just because say. <laughs> I want to know for anyone out there who's not quite sure what fluency means, can you give us a definition? Yes. I love starting there. I feel like I start every talk there yes. um, because it's a poorly understood word. So yes. I think the connection to just like language fluency is a nice place to start. If you think about a language that you're fluent in, you can say things lots of ways. You can adjust to how formal you're speaking or how informal you're speaking, um, you know, based on the occasion and that sort of thing. So that's really what uh, math fluency is. And it's bigger than basic facts. Fluency also gets assigned to basic facts way too often. If you Google it or you hear just teachers talking and they say they're working on fluency, it oftentimes means they're working on basic facts. It's bigger than that. It's this whole thing around being able to make decisions about how a problem is being solved based on the numbers in the problem. And that's true. Uh, it could be, and I say numbers, but it could be algebra, for example, where you have an algebraic expression and you're rather than just thinking every single time I'm going to eliminate parentheses, then instead <laughs> you're like, ooh, let me take a look at this first because I have some other options I could use. And And that's what a fluent person does is consider the problem and then make a decision based on the options that they're, you know, that they've learned. Taking notes, even though I've read, (laughs) I've read and reread and reread and your books and um, listened to you so many times, like every time you say something, I'm just like, yes, that, that is a much more concise way to say it. So I wrote down, make decisions, how problems are solved and consider the problem first. I think that's that's the key to it all right there, right? But how do you how do you assess, right? Because assessment that's a whole nother thing. All right, we'll get into that later. But um, yeah, well, we can start with that right now, Laura, because okay, I mean, you, know, you start with the end in mind. Okay. Sure. <laughs> so, okay. So there are, uh, so again, speaking of fluency, that my response there is like the lay person response, right? Because I'm pretty fluent talking about fluency because right. I've been doing it for a long time. Um, but to be more specific for um, about fluency, we have those three major components of working on efficiency, working on flexibility and 
accuracy. So those are pretty big things, hard to assess. But if you drill down a little bit more and you look at efficiency as choosing an appropriate strategy, that can be assessed. So there's these more observable um, pieces. So if a student has, for example, 304 minus 299, just to keep it pretty simple, 304 minus 299, and they choose to use um, a regrouping standard algorithm, then, then I would assess them as not fluent because they didn't pick an appropriate strategy for that problem. A fluent student would look at that problem and go, oh, hey, those are five apart. Right. The answer is five. And again, that fluency relies on them actually understanding subtraction as difference, right? Mm-hmm. So they have to know that. Otherwise, they're going to be taking away whatever that number I said was, 290. 304 eight. minus 299. I wrote it down. Yeah. 299. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I feel like you break down those big constructs into these observable pieces and even accuracy is not just that you got the answer correct, but that you knew how to like use whatever strategy you're using correctly. So we break those things down into, um, these actions, these fluency actions that you would notice on your students. Well, then, you know, when you're designing your assessment, you're like, well, how could I assess something beyond accuracy? That means I'm not just going to score, you know, that they got 10 right. What am I going to do about it? That's a whole nother conversation (laughs) to go about making sure we're assessing more than just accuracy. Right. I was thinking about that this morning, actually, something that you said that resonated and brought me back to that idea is that when we're fluent in something, we're able to speak about it for long periods of time, right? So like you have talked about fluency so much, you can talk about it for a long period of time. With my students, when I ask them something like 304 minus 299, it's it's just immediate. It's like a, they get to the answer, but they're not able to tell me, right, why, why and how and, and all these different ways of seeing it. So they're just answer driven as opposed to really thinking about the math behind it. You know what I'm saying? So the conversation is very short, I guess is my point. So they're showing me that they're not fluent in things because they jump to a standard algorithm without thinking about other things. And when, when I ask them and probe them, they don't have much to say, you know, they don't have. Yeah. And when you say they're answer driven, that's our fault as teachers because we're only assessing their answers. And so we're not really thinking of ways to, even if we're doing things like number talks, that's great. But then our lesson can transfer back over to, okay, now here's how you do this thing. And then the assessment that goes with it is just looking at the answers. So we can be doing things that focus on fluency, but then when it comes down to it, um, what, what gets assessed is what's interpreted as what's valued and we get answer driven. So as the students get older and older and older, that's what they're focusing on. And even just that problem, 304 minus 299, like we could take the rest of this podcast and just like talk about it. Like what do we know about it and what's useful and what's, you know, um, there's so much we could talk about that would be important for students to have just that prompt. I love that idea, Karina, a prompt to say, tell me all you know about 304 minus 299 and just go. Right. Tell me about it. Right. But they don't, they don't have the vocabulary. They don't have the, the background knowledge to discuss it. And so they just, they just stay at the answer. That's all they have. That's all they've got. So then how can we, Jenny, how can we build their fluency? So one of my um, things uh, that I like to say is uh, we teach them to use the strategy. (laughs) I know you're feeding me that line, Laura. (laughs) We teach students to use the strategies and then we teach them to choose. And to me, that's a a major uh, equity agenda because we have to give students access. So I'm just going to share, like, let's go back to number talks. It's a great practice. So please don't take this as criticizing them. But across that classroom, you might have like four strategies But if Karina is always going to um, like partial sums, partial sums, partial sums, and that's her go-to, then I need to worry about whether Karina's actually learned things like a make 10 strategy or compensation or whatever. So there's, there's always with teaching this, this play between the individual and the group. Like we learn in the group, but we have to hold the individual accountable and make sure the learning's accessible. So those are all really big words, but um, <laughs> cause I'm fluent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So anyways, I think that with our fluency work, we want to take something like if we see our students are using partial sums, great. They have a strategy, but let's like really do some 
teaching with visuals and stories and things like that so that making 10 becomes or making tens or making a whole that that strategy gets enough development and so that the students understand how it works, why it works, and then enough practice using it through whatever practice we want to give them. You know, I'm a fan of games and things like that, as you know, but it could even be a worksheet, but they're being asked to really use that strategy when it, when it makes sense. And so then you can talk about which of these problems did you find that strategy useful and then really talking about it. So it's added to a student's repertoire. Then the number talks where their brainstorming strategies can be, you know, can come back in the loop. But I feel like that's what we want to do. We want to make sure they have, they feel adept at using a strategy and then have lots of opportunities through routines and other things to, um, to choose. So it sounds more like it needs to be explicitly taught, right? Explicitly taught, right. Yeah. And so um, I want to say something about that word because that's another, like, just like fluency can get misinterpreted yeah. is explicitly teaching something doesn't mean you're telling them. It's right. not a lecture. Here's how you use the making 10 strategy. I mean, a strategy in and of itself is not an algorithm. It's just this idea. It's not do this first, then do this, then do that. That's an algorithm. And algorithms are important in math, but a strategy is just an idea that you can put to use. So it's a um, general idea. So the making 10 strategy is that you're going to move some numbers around to make a benchmark, to make a 10 or to make a hundred or make a whole. That's the idea of it. And then you can be flexible in how you do that. So what was your question again? (laughs) That that would be, that that would just be, that that would have to be explicitly taught. Right. So, so we're going to teach them like through like counters and stories and whatnot, that that's, that that gives you the same answer and then have them think about. So um, what, you know, like you could do a, would you rather, you know, add like 39 plus 26 or 40 plus 25, would you rather, and why, you know? And so they start saying, oh yeah, the strategy is useful. And, um, and then learning how to use it, learning how to use it, learning when it's useful is then I think, you know, how we really make those ideas explicit And uh, one of my favorite questions is a question that starts with when, you know, when are you going to use making 10? When are you going to use compensation? When are you going to use, you know, because that's that explicit helping them process when that strategy is a good fit for the numbers of the problem. So that's the making it explicit is allowing them the time to think through how to use it and when to use it, but not you telling. Right. I'm thinking of not just Karina's fifth grade class, but like fifth graders that I have, you know, we always say time. I mean, we have limited time, right? So if a teacher wants me to go in and work with quote, you know, I don't want to say it. You know what? I don't want to say the low ones, right? Work with um, the kids that don't know things yet. Do you think, cause like Karina's living in multiplication and division world, right? Yeah. And so should we, I feel like we should go back to adding and subtracting first. Yeah. So I agree with that because if you're gonna, uh, if you're working in like multiplication facts, for example, and you're doing the add a group strategy, so you're thinking of like seven times eight, and how you want to do it is you want to use seven times seven and add a group, or that could be a near squares, whichever one you want to call it. Well, then you're going to be adding on to 49 a group. Well, if you're going to then count up by ones, <laughs> here, that's strategy falls short for you in terms of its efficiency. What you want to be able to do is maybe make it 10 or jump up over 10 or something like that. So the addition strategies become useful for multiplication. And of course, the same would be true with subtraction if you're doing like subtract a group strategy. And then as you grow out to two digit numbers and fractions and decimals, that ability to like chunk your jumps forward and backwards is just critical to your you know, being efficient in how you reason. Um, so lots of work on, you know, benchmarks and things like that, using our benchmarks, I think is really important. So, I mean, I, I feel like there is time. I mean, you started with talking about time, right? Time is so precious. So we have to ask ourselves at whatever grade we're teaching, what is going to further stand in the way of the student's success? So this is the argument I use for basic facts. No matter what age you have a student, if they don't have that automaticity with the facts and their related strategies, it's going to impede their success with other stuff. So we keep working at it. We keep working at it in whatever ways we can find that time. Getting a class, extra moments, 
um, at the beginning of the day or where we have those little pockets of 10 or 15 minutes, we're doing a little fact instruction or we're playing a game to practice, ongoing practice, so important, those sort of things. So my question now is what you've said, basic facts a few times. What are basic facts? So basic facts are uh, officially the single digit um, operations, four operations. So all the way up to uh, nine plus nine um, or nine times nine, starting with the zeros. Those are officially the basic facts to me. And so because once you get to two digits, you open up a whole new world of being able to break apart one of the you know, by place value and things like that. So you're like, even if you have 12s on your list, like you do in Florida, well, 12s mm-hmm. are 10s and twos, you can like, you know, break those apart to form, uh, you know, a solution. So, but basic facts to me are the single digit. And that does not mean that they're the facts that need to be memorized. So to be clear, it's not that they're just facts, they're the basic facts, meaning they're the ones we need to learn. They're the, you know, the building blocks for moving up into two digit numbers and beyond. So how do I convince people, teachers, how do I convince teachers to stop having kids memorize, like rote memorize? People still don't understand the difference between memorization or from memory and automaticity. Um, right. So I am a, there's some things about Common Core that were great benefits. I think yes. the word strategy is in there so much. I think that is a great uh, a, contribution that happened that um, we had started attending a lot more to strategies um, in 2010 than we had previously. Not that strategies hadn't been encouraged, but here they were in um, much more explicitly in the standards. So I think that was a good thing. Um, I think the no from memory language was just um, unfortunate. <laughs> I would have rather that they just use the word automaticity because we know what automaticity looks like. If you think about like driving into work or um, some people are automatic at cooking, that would not be me. We all have those things that we can pretty much do automatically. Um, in fact, you're sitting there going, I can't believe I just did that thing because it's so automatic to you. So I, I, I think that's the best word to describe the goal for basic facts. So you, but you get there through just so many experiences you've had with it, not from memorizing it. So memorizing is what you do with like a phone number or your, you know, your student ID or whatever it is that you're just trying to remember. And that to me, the best reason I have for not memorizing, well, let me just lay out a couple. For one, memorizing doesn't work very well. Um, it's easily forgotten. Um, you have no backup plan. So if you have just memorized, you know, that like six times seven is 42, um, then you're nervous, you're taking a test, you forget it. Like, what are you going to do? Skip count by seven, skip count by sixes. That's, that's just going to be so time consuming. If you were just like, oh, but I know three times seven, I can double it. Or I know five times seven. And, you know, so if you have some kind of relational understanding of six times seven, you've got other options than just skip counting. So I feel like memorizing just denies students access to these other ways to get to the answer than skip counting. But my favorite answer when I originally said there's just one is that we are growing students into mathematicians. And so we want to start with strategies at the beginning. So if you take, for example, three times seven and double it as a way to get six times seven, that's a wonderful strategy for something like 15 times 24 where you could think of it as 30 times 12, a have and double strategy. These strategies grow. And Mm -hmm. um, certainly like making 10, this idea that nine plus six is the same as you can move one over and think of it as 10 plus five is one of the most useful ideas we have in math. You know, we can use that for adding um, any numbers. We can like, really, if you're adding two digit numbers, that method is always going to work. And it's always going to be, at least as efficient as the standard algorithm. When you get up into three and four and five digit numbers, sometimes the standard algorithm is gonna be, it gets kind of messy to like make a thousand, but sometimes it is a good strategy. It's just not as commonly a good strategy. And then it's a great, just a beautiful strategy for fractions and decimals. And we so often with fractions and decimals only use the standard algorithms. We are, all of our strategy work goes out the window, but this idea of now it's not making tens, 
It's make a whole. It's a great strategy for fractions and decimals. And then let's not stop there. Let's go up to middle school and add in make a zero, which is, you know, this idea that opposites are zero, big idea with negative numbers. And that all grows out of starting with basic facts with a strategy that those students can then grow and use all through the other computation they're learning. And every time you're saying the strategy, I'm picturing some kind of manipulative, whether it's a counter, like a, you know, connecting cube or um, something so that it's not just verbal. We have to have stuff in front of the kids that they can manipulate, right? I absolutely agree. So, you know, that strategy talking about making tens just totally lends to a tens frame. Um, anything that comes in tens, it could be, um, you know, Unifix cubes that are stacked in tens where they're like regrouping and pulling one over. They could eventually get to base 10 blocks, uh, the wreck and wreck. Um, just throw out some other ones. <laughs> I mean, yeah. all the things that come in tens uh, are going to be really a great fit for that strategy for sure. Yeah. And then when you get to like the three times seven, you're talking about arrays, you know, just looking at those arrays and how you have three rows and then you just double them and you have six rows. And so that whole idea of arrays is super useful for thinking about strategies with multiplication. It just talking about 10 frames just reminded me of Dr. Nikki Newton shared over the weekend, she shared a a 10 frame that I had never seen before. Now her session was for K through two. So I'm in fifth grade land most of the time, all the time. Right. So going to her session was eye opening because Mm -hmm. it's a lot of things like finger nausea. I had no idea what that was. (laughs) I had never heard of that. What is that? You know what that is? Yeah. Oh, no. it's the it's the ability to say that that's three fingers without seeing it. So that I know that this is three fingers because it's in front of me. Yeah. But I can tell you that this is three fingers without seeing it. It's like bunny ears. Like oh, you can say, okay. oh, that's four. That's that's one. Right. Um, without seeing it visually. I know. I'd never, never heard of that. I'm not in that land. Right. (laughs) There you go. So I learned a lot from her session. And one of them was the 10 frames she had. It was just like, I mean, you could present it just vertically or just horizontal, like all 10 in a row. And the first five are shaded gray. And then the top ones are just white so that you can chunk it a little bit more. And I, what I liked about that is that it lends itself really well to place value, right? So that, I mean, we see it with a regular 10 frame, but this just standing upright, just, I just felt like that was a nice, and yeah, it I reminded was, me of a wreck and wreck. Yeah. It looked like a wreck and wreck, right? That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the wreck and wreck, where you can see the five, but the yes. 10 is not broken apart. It's just one continuous piece. And so I actually uh, downloaded that article and the, cause it's an article in teaching children mathematics. So I downloaded the article, it's Melina and I don't know, but we can add it into the yes. post. It's a, it's a nice piece to, um, the point in the article is that if you have like the number eight, it's hard to see it as five and three, right? Um, the way you would have it if it's split, you yeah. know, or sorry, if you had like four plus three then the, the three gets split. Anyways, it, it's an interesting piece. I need to consume it a little bit more and reflect on it. Like you all said, reflect on reflect, at the beginning of the podcast. It's important to reflect on the things we've learned and sort of try to integrate it with the other things that we're doing. Yeah. Is there anything else um, that we can do to encourage teachers to learn these strategies? I mean, you know, I had an hour uh for PD back in October with the K2 teachers and an hour with three, five. And I, and we all know the hour, especially when listening to you goes by super duper fast. But like, I felt like I wasn't even dipping a toe. I was kind of like, here's the teeny tiny drop in the ocean, you know? So what, what else can we do to encourage teachers (laughs) to want to learn these things? I think it sort of depends on like where you're jumping in on their learning. So if it's an initial experience, I feel like a lot of it is just, awareness that, oh yeah, this is really worthwhile. And I think that's, you know, like I oftentimes start a session with doing some math problems and just reflecting on how we reason as grownups and not because we're teachers per se, but just because we're shoppers or consume, you know, we're, um, you know, car owners, or we're doing these other things that we are, our world is full of numeracy. So we use these strategies as human beings. And so it's reasonable and, ethical practice to ensure that our students have access to the ways that we're going to use math in the future. Like we rarely actually do standard algorithms, you know, in our 
day-to-day lives, that's when we pull out our phone. Yeah. So, you know, it's about balance and thinking, all right, so yes, we're going to do the standard algorithms, but let's, let's be reasonable about that time investment and use some of that time for other methods. And so I, I feel like for them to see that this is really important for preparing their students for life. I think that's part of it. And then I just love focusing on um, students emerging like math identities, right? And just like all teachers, I really feel like want their students to feel confident. So let's start with that. Like, how can we grow our students' confidence? Well, a great way to do it is give them some choice you know, in how they solve a problem, solve a problem in a way that makes sense to them. So the worst thing you can do is have them memorize a multi-step algorithm that doesn't make any sense. That is not going to build their uh, positive feelings about math and their sense of, you know, their agency, that sort of thing. So I feel like that's a good way to get teachers to reflect on the why behind um, a real approach to fluency. And then the next thing I think is that time thing that you brought up is how are we going to do this? You know, so how are we going to address fluency well, given all the stuff we're trying to teach. And that's a great place to be to really think, how can we find time in our school day, the way our school is structured this year? Um, How can we maybe pare down on some of our standard algorithm work to make room for the other? Um, What if we look at what they did last year and what they're doing next year to make sure we're not over teaching or under teaching those sort of things? Um, How do we like how do we know when we're sort of finished? Like maybe we're sort of finished with that topic, but they're not finished learning because we're going to follow up. We have a follow up plan with routines and activities or games that are going to continue to reinforce. So finding that how piece is then I think the ongoing work to, you know, have it happen. And a plug for our fluency series is that's what that fluency series is getting at. Like all the companion books are just loads of activities for that ongoing, wherever you can figure out the how, how to make it happen, then all the activities and things like that are, are what that those resources are there for. So that when you get to like, well, how am I going to teach it? Well, then that's, you know, there's loads of activities in those books. So what I'm hearing is that even though we're, so fifth grade, we're still, we're doing a lot of multiplication, a lot of division. I, I still need, I need to go back. And I think I especially need to go back to subtraction. Subtraction does not get the attention that it needs. And that's where, especially with the kids. So I didn't even teach them long division. They already knew it, you know, from, from home, from previous teachers, whatever. They, they already knew it. And then that's what I found with every, every topic that I've taught, all, all the standard algorithms they already knew. So I haven't even touched standard algorithms, but doubling and having, when I did that, I like, oh, what if we thought of it like this? They, they thought, I, what are you doing up there? Or the constant <laughs> difference when I subtracted decimals and I had um, something similar to your 304, like if it was five and four tenths minus four and nine tenths, right? That, that those, those numbers are so close together that we can just count on, or we can shift the difference, shift the difference over. They had no idea what I was doing. Like they really looked at me like I had three heads. Yeah. And so I agree. That's where you pick up. So you can pick up with whole number examples. Right. So they can really see it without being, you know, worried about um, decimals and the fractions and other things they're not as familiar with. So take some whole number things and then start with the idea of, you know, do you want to find the difference or do you want to use a takeaway strategy? Like, which would you choose? And um, they are probably ready to think about that in the abstract. Like, how would you do this? And then for them to just like reflect on their metacognition. Oh, hey, when the numbers are close together, I'm going to find the difference. And when that second number, the subject hand is very small, I'm probably going to use a takeaway. I'm probably using takeaway thinking. And that at least pulls them away from just, oh, I'm going to stack them and regroup and solve. Yes. Like they start thinking about the numbers and that's really the, you know, the fluency act- activity. And then, oh, hey, here's another strategy. So they get that one sort of down. And so they might play a game where they're deciding, are they going to use takeaway or find the difference? Takeaway or find the difference. And so they're thinking about that. And then this whole idea of a, find the difference. That slide is based on find the difference. So then they, you know, take the problem that is whatever your problem was. It was something minus four and nine tenths. Five and four tenths minus four and nine tenths. Right. So, you know, that one is really close together. So for me, I would just do a jumping up strategy, Right. but also to take that and say, Hey, we have another option here. Look at this. 
And then they can start with doing like a conjecture. Is this the same? Will this always work? Right. You know, prove it to me that it'll always work. Uh, if you've shown it numerically, then that goes back to like what Laura was saying about the visuals. Prove to me that this will work. And then they can pull out a number line and prove it, or they can do like a quantity thing, like that they've added, you know, if they're doing with decimals, they've added some, a coin in here and a coin in here. So it's the same problem. So they're kind of come up with their own proof that it works. And now they sort of have their minds wrapped around this idea of constant difference so that we're not just telling them, here's a strategy, it's constant difference. Here's what you do. You add the same amount. Now you've algorithmatized. I don't think that's a word, but (laughs) (laughs) you've You've turned a nice reasoning strategy that's based on a really important idea that you're finding the difference and that difference doesn't matter where its location is on a number yeah. line to, um, you know, some kind of another algorithm to memorize. And I feel like that was sort of a misdirect that happened in the Common Core with like where um, partial sums has been taught so algorithmically. And that's why then teachers who work with students with special needs are like, look, (laughs) I've already learned. uh, Now we've got two things we have to, you know, like go through fairly rotely and get the kids to remember. And that is not to the student's advantage. What is to the student's advantage is to have these ideas that they can put into action. Um, And those ideas um, are that like, oh, if I'm looking at the difference, that allows me to place that that thing um, on the number line wherever I want. Right. And I, and I feel like there's been, there's two reasons as to why it's still taught like an algorithm. I think first it has to do with the textbook itself is structured in a way, you know, do this step first, do this step second. That's why I don't really use a textbook because it, it, right. it limits kids, right? It's like, here's an empty box. Here's another empty box. You have to fill this. It's and a lot of times they'll look at it. Scaffolded. A- Right. Right. Yeah. Right. They'll look at that and they'll say, why? I don't even understand what I'm doing in the box. Don't worry about it. Just how would you solve this? And then second, I think it's because our own history of mathematics teaching has always been so procedural, right? That when teachers are presented with a, a strategy, they say, well, how do I teach this? What are if the it's steps? Not, right. If it's not in a step-by-step process, I don't know what else to do. Yeah. I think that's tough. And I mean, you're right that um, for textbooks, it's just word on the page. Like imagine if like right now we were instead like doing some kind of written document, what would we put out to answer this focus question? You know, what does fluency really mean and why is it important? I mean, in writing, it's just hard to do all of that. And some of those structures are needed for the wide range of teachers um, and families and students who are accessing that book and looking for examples. But yeah, what you want to do is first come in with this conceptual building of here's this big idea. And then here's these structures here that will help us think about it. And um, but generalizing that idea and thinking about it and how it's useful is just so important. And so that's what a teacher can bring to their textbook is to pull away and do some of that conceptual engagement, make sure the manipulatives and visuals are there and that the students have that time to really talk through and process this idea. And then those structures in the book can provide, you know, additional uh, practice or support. Yeah. And I have to, I have to also say that those activities and those games that you have, I love how adaptable they are and how you can just so easily switch out. It's the same structure, but same game, but just switch out for fractions or for decimals or for whole numbers. So I so appreciate that there's that flexibility there in the games because it's so much easier to manage as a teacher to just teach them one set of rules, you know, one, one game, one game board. And then we just have so many more uses out of it. So Thank you for thinking about that because it's it does take a lot of time to play and set up and and teach how you want them to play the game properly, you know? Exactly. You teach the game and then it's a time saver to just be yeah. able to say, hey, we're mixing this game up. And you can mix the game up by the numbers that you're focusing on, like you're saying. You can like adapt the game board. You can do so many things to just tweak it. And when the students start... Um, like playing the game and maybe uh, it's getting a little bit easy for them or boring, then you can actually change the, the strategies. Like, you know, I think of how many games we have where you're putting like, you know, three chips down to score something or four chips down to score something, but you can start layering in things like, 
well, you can steal somebody's thing if you do this, you know, right. you have to sort of king it, you know, put a second thing on top of it to protect it. Or otherwise, if somebody else wants to like steal yours, they can, or, you know, you can make it. But at the beginning, that's just too, it, it's just very simple and then family friendly too, right? So right. that we can send instructions home to families where they're not, you know, wondering about all the instructions or if we're translating those instructions into different languages, then our translation's just simpler to do. Yes. Well, I just wanted to say, uh, talking about easily to adapt games is a shout out to the Kentucky Center for Math and the website they have for the Math Pack Fluency book, because everything's downloadable in a Word version. So you can download it, you can change the instructions, you can adapt the game boards, you can download the PDFs if you like, but they are uh, downloadable Word versions so that you can fix them how you want and available in Spanish, speaking of the translations. Nice. And we'll definitely put that in the show notes too. Uh, Jenny, we can't thank you enough for this time with us. We know it's been uh, a longer time than we usually record, but we could listen to this you all day. Treat. Like, yes, we're not lying. Okay. <laughs> well, I could visit with you all day. I mean, I'll talk fluency with anyone, but especially with the two of you, I'm happy Yay. to talk about fluency because we really do have an ongoing conversation about all the layers what it, what it is, how do you support it with students, how do you develop it with teachers. And, you know, we started the day with talking about how we get teachers to continue to, or people to continue to want to become teachers, which is, right. I think, teaching, when you understand what teaching for fluency is, it's a much more joyful life as a professional. So just to loop back to that beginning, I feel like um, who wants to just force kids to remember algorithms and then just make sure that they have them down? It's not the joyful relational experience that really teaching for fluency, teaching for meaningful, you know, meaningful math can be. So I think it's all related. That is so true. So Jenny, I think, you know, the format um, now is when we usually throw out a challenge to our listeners. And I was wondering, I'm putting you on the spot. I know, but if you want to give the challenge to our listeners this week. For me to give a challenge. Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is, but you tell me if this is fitting, is for listeners to um, take on a strategy maybe that they have not been using for doing whatever math they're doing, and then just themselves own it, use it, try it, and work on their own fluency. Talk about it, all the ways they could take 304 minus 299 or five and four tenths minus four and nine tenths or whatever. And just think through whatever strategy they want to be working on and how they could really grow that as a go-to for themselves. That's awesome. awesome. (laughs) Thanks so much, Jenny. Thanks for joining us and listeners. Thanks for joining us. Thank it's been It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. We invite you to join the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag LearningThroughMath. We'd love to hear your feedback. Make sure to tag us at Laura and Karina. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. To you too.